Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Well, I'm going to thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I especially want to say a thanks to Carl Michael and our whole praise team. Guys, thank you so much. I was just blessed. Um, also, uh, we just continue just for a few minutes here this morning with our, our series entitled RE, R-E, colon. Um, and if you would like a journal, if you haven't had it to get a journal yet, I don't know if our deacons are around here, but um, if... Do we have any deacons? Uh, Amy, Miss Amy's got to look for them. But once the deacons come in, if you see a deacon at the front, just go ahead and raise your hand, and they can bring you a journal if you would like one. Um, this series entitled Re has focused on the post-exilic period of Israel's history. That simply means the period after the exile. Um, Israel went into exile in Babylon, and so the series has been looking at their return from exile, the rebuilding of the temple, as well as the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Each title has begun with re, and today, as you've probably already noticed, our focus is re-entry. Uh, now, um, as you get a journal or already have your journal, um, some questions that you can be reflecting on um, <clears throat> uh, now or after the sermon, if something in the message triggers for you, is the question of, what do I need? And what do I long to see? What do I need and what do I long to see? And for our kiddos who might be uh, keeping count of key words or even for our kiddos at heart, our key words today, re-entry or enter, house or temple, blind or lame. So any one of those six words, if you're keeping track, kiddos or kiddos at heart, feel free to do that. So I want to cruise along here. Um, as we have mentioned, we've been focusing on re-entry, but there's more to this story than meets the eye. During the rebuilding of Jerusalem, or the rebuilding of the temple, Ezra tells that many of the older priests and Levites and family he heads who had seen Solomon's temple, that, that's the temple that was before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, when they saw... Uh, they ended up weeping aloud when they saw the foundation of the latter temple being laid, i.e. the foundation of the temple that was laid after the return from exile. In their eyes, this latter temple was inferior. The Jews of Ezra's day couldn't let go of the stories and memories of Solomon's temple and its former glory, and so their sorrows and tears blind them to future hope. The Lord addresses their regrets um, through the words of the prophet Haggai, who says, I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former. Now the question is, well, how? How is the glory of the latter to exceed the beauty and grandeur of Solomon's temple? I mean, this thing was magnificent. Well, the answer is reentry. It, it, and and, and reentry is a, a more than meets the eye kind of a story. In fact, it, the, it reminds me of the experience of David Ireland. Uh, he wrote a book called Letters to an Unborn Child. 
Ireland was suffering um, from a rare uh, disease that left him confined to a wheelchair. He didn't believe he'd live to see the birth of his child, of his firstborn child. And so he wrote a series of letters to his son. One of the most touching messages, he speaks of the child's mother. He says this. He says, your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for your mother and I. It means she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, um, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house, down the steps, open the garage, pull me, put me in the car, take the pedals off the wheelchair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get in the car, and manually, physically, this story comes back from the 70s before uh, bar I was barely born, I was two years old, um, and she would take the garage door and literally yank it and pull it closed. I mean, boys and girls, this is before cell phones and cordless phones and um, iPads and half of our lifetime, more than our lifetime. Here she was pulling that door closed. Then they drive off to the restaurant. The whole process, David says, starts over again. She gets me out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, sits me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I'm comfortable, and we sit down to have dinner, and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. So next time you or I see a disabled person out to eat with their family, I hope that we'll realize that there's more to the story than meets the eye. There's more sacrifice, more struggle, and more surprises than we might expect it. Surprises certainly what I experienced when I first read of David's overthrow of Jerusalem and a seemingly insensitive reference to the blind and lame. From the inception of Jerusalem's, uh, from, from the inception of Israel's occupation of Jerusalem, Entrance into this famed city was more than a meet, it was a more than meets the eye experience. And in order to understand the unseen significance of our focus today, re-entry, we must consider King David's original entry into Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 4, we find the account of the elders of Israel anointing David at king as their king at Hebron. This was after Saul had chased him through the wilderness, long after the prophet Samuel had anointed him as the future king. But the, the elders of Israel finally anoint David. And after he reigns at Hebron for seven and a half years, he goes to conquer Jerusalem and make it his new capital city. And we find this account in 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 8. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and the Jebusites said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away. Thinking, David can't get in here. This fortress is impenetrable. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And on the day that he captured it, he said, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not enter the house. Well, why does the text say that David's soul hates the lame and blind? 
and why that they should not come enter into the house. This is bizarre. One, well, you know, one thing we do know in this story, David flips the slander of the Jebusites on its head. When they say our blind, blind and lame will turn you away, why he took that as motivation to move forward and told his men to reach the lame and the blind through the water tunnel. So I have a question for you. What is that blinding criticism which the Lord would have you to take as motivation? How does he want you to open your eyes to vulnerabilities in your thinking and give you the courage to make your way to victory through the water tunnel of his provision? What's the criticism? Is it, is it, is it from an external source? Is it something that others are saying about you? Is it something internally? Is it some fear? Is it some insecurity? Is it something that you know is a lie and yet you're wrestling to, to make sense of it all? What is that thing that God is saying, let this be your motivation to walk through the tunnel of my provision into victory? One thing we know is God will take us through. Now, coming back to this strange account, you know, I still struggle with this idea of, well, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And then I remember John chapter 9, the story of the man that was born blind. Based upon a question from Jesus' disciples, you, you might wonder if their understanding of his blindness was influenced by 2 Samuel 5, the blind and lame shall not enter the house. Look what happens uh, in, in John 9. And I'm going to pick up just in the preceding verse because Jesus is having a confrontation with the religious establishment. And uh, it's a question about Christ's identity. And in response, Jesus says this to them. Very truly, I tell you. You want to know who I am? I tell you this. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, this was blasphemy to them because he, he was claiming to be God in their eyes. And so they pick up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And as he went along, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Interesting. As Jesus is slipping away from the temple, they encounter a blind man, and his disciples wonder, who sins? Who sinned? Did they think this man was unworthy of being in God's presence because of his blindness? Did they feel he could not enter the house? Well, I realize I'm in, using a little preacher's imagination here, but while I can't say for sure, here's what I know for sure. We know, we know what Jesus said in response. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the works of God might Dis be displayed in him. This is amazing grace. This happened so God's amazing grace might be revealed through him. So what is the work God wants to reveal through you? You may not have been born blind, but what is it that God wants to demonstrate through your weakness? What part of you uh, does God want to use to reveal his glory? For the blind man, Jesus makes mud, puts it on his eyes, tells him to wash 
in the pool of Siloam. Now, that's interesting because Siloam means to send. In essence, Christ commands the blind man to wash in the sending pool. We might say the pool of purpose. Seeing for this man came by obeying. Purpose came by responding to the healing word of Christ. Purpose lets the blind see and the lame walk. Purpose opens the mouth of the mute. Purpose helps those who are silent find a testimony and those incapable become capable. Go, friends, and wash in the pool of purpose. What a blessed command. Paul will speak of Christ's church being cleansed by the washing in the waters of his word. May you wash in the word of the Lord. Through simple trust and obedience, may you do the one thing God has most recently asked you to do. And as you obey, may you see the light of day. May your purpose become clear. For the blind men of Siloam, his purpose was to testify before the blind, to confront those who said they can see. As they sought to discredit this man's healer, his testimony reveals their malady. Here's their words. They say to him, hey, give glory to God. We know that this man who healed you is a sinner. And he answers, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And so they say to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He says, I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Uh, do you want to become his disciples too? No. They revile him. You're his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But for, as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said, well, well, there's an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person, of a person born blind, pardon me. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in your sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Wonder if it was echoing, the blind and lame shall not enter the house. They shall not enter. And yet, on leaving the temple, on being put out, he encounters the king, who, by the way, encountered him after slipping out from the temple grounds. What happens on the outside? This man who was born blind finds him who is the inside. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And then the punchline, Jesus, for judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Before opening the eyes of the blind man in this judgment hour, Jesus turned over the ta tables of the blind in John 2. Those profiting 
for, uh, from religion, using religion for personal gain, selling their doves and sheep and cattle at ex, 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 exorbitant prices. And Jesus makes a, score, a scourge of cords and drives them out of the temple saying, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. These religious authorities had turned the temple rituals and the rites of worship into big business. And blinded by their prophets, they asked for a sign from Jesus to demonstrate his authority to overturn the tables. Unfortunately, what they could not see is that he was the sign. He is the house. In reply to their demand for a sign, Jesus simply says this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Here they are thinking they can see, but do they really? Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple that the former blind man of John 9 would enter. Having been put out of the synagogue, the man enters into the temple of the presence of God which became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God. And this man's healing and testimony are the first fruits of the blind and lame whom Jesus will heal at his re-entry into the temple at the end of his ministry after his triumphal re-entry into the city of David. Christ had, had, had been to the temple as a young man at the age of 12, and now he comes as king. And in judgment, King Jesus will re-enter the temple to drive out the spiritually blind and lame money changers a second time. And he will say, you have made my, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. Out with you. And on the heels of them walking out is this amazing Text and the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Whatever the book of 2 Samuel meant by the blind and lame not entering the house, there is more to this story, more to this passage than meets the eye. Like David's confrontation with the Jebusites outside the walls of Jerusalem, Jesus gives the Jewish leadership multiple opportunities to see through the healing of the blind man in John 9 and Matthew 9 and the cleansing of the temple in John 2 and Matthew 21. He gives them multiple opportunities to see his re entry in Matthew 21 is a profound moment of judgment in his confrontation of those who say they can see the blind and lame here an invitation to seek his mercy. Amazing. Same act, same moment, same surge of divinity flashing through humanity. And as he's driving one group out, another group sees mercy at the door and they enter in. Like the two men of Matthew 9, they were not afraid to follow Jesus into the house. Matthew 9, when Jesus departed from there, where was he departing from? He was departing from the home of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, who had had a daughter who died. And in that resurrection moment, Jairus' eyes are open. And as he goes out of Jairus' house, two blind men follow him, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, 
if I can get my slide to move, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. I believe Jesus brought us to this place here in this moment at this time today to open our eyes. And his question for you and me is, do you believe I am able to do this? What is your this? What would you have Jesus to do for you? How, you, how do you need him to help you see? Understand that in order to know your this, there must be an awareness of your blindness, an awareness of your need. And if you find yourself saying, I'm not even sure if I know fully what my need is, then ask him, say, Lord, help me to be able to recognize my need, to realize I am blind. And once you know your need, ask him, say, Lord, give me the longing to see. As long as you say you can see, Jesus, as much as he would want to help you, he can't. Early in Matthew 9, he says, those who are, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you know your need? Do you long to see? Sometimes it's easy to think, well, hey, you know what? <laughs> what do you mean, know my need? I've already confessed. I, I got baptized. I made my choice. I'm good with God. So... I don't know why I would need to come forward at a call again. I've been, I, I went forward. No blindness here. <laughs> Seventh-day Adventists, we have the truth. But does the truth have us? I'm reminded of the Savior's words to the church in Laodicea in which he says, you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and need, need of nothing and do not know, you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may be re not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. Oh, that we would see. As long as the darkness of this time hangs over our world, we need our Savior's eyesalve so that we may see that it is him who is carrying us home. Like Mephibosheth, he carries us. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's, one of Jonathan's sons, David and Jonathan, best friends that have made an agreement. If you die, I'll take care of yours. If I die, you take care of mine. And David held true to that commitment. After he had overthrown Jerusalem, he hears of Mephibosheth, who had been crippled from the age of five years old. And he goes and he finds the, young, the man now, and he brings him into the palace, and he says, you, sit at my table. And for the rest of his life, Mephibosheth will eat at the table of King David in the palace. And like that experience, we will always need the strong arms of the son of David to carry us to the table. Or like David Ireland, who depended on his beautiful bride to help him enjoy a romantic evening at a table for two, 
May we realize that there is more to our relationship with Jesus than our eyes can see. For upon their return from an evening out, Mrs. Ireland would unload her husband from the car or load him back into the car, drive him home, reverse the routine, get him out of the car, wheel him into the house, undress him, help him shower, put on his jammies, help him into bed, lay down by his head, squeeze his hand with hers and say, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. What? She's telling him, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. Because when the Lord says to us, well done, my good and faithful servant, all we will truly be able to say is, what amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. At the fall of David's city, it was never intended as a curse of the physically blind and lame, but rather it was a warning to the proud and arrogant who say they can see. Oh, Jesus. Guard us from this blinding spirit of pride. May we know that you are the one thing we need most. May we long to see you. And carry us, Lord Jesus, to the table.